0: By the way, lest we rag on these people too deeply, people have not changed much in a few thousand years. Today, people want God for what God can do for them. They want God to heal them, but they don't want God. They want God to marry them, but they don't want God. They want God to get them out of the mess they're in, but they don't want God. They want God to give them a job, but they don't want the living Lord. And that's what this crowd is like. They want the Lord Jesus for what he can do.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The God of the Impossible. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and as Pastor Carl moves into Chapter 6 today, we find the longest chapter in this Gospel. Over the next few days, we will look at several components to this chapter, which cover just a 24-hour period. But today, we begin by looking at three vignettes associated with one more miracle with a message as recorded by the Apostle John. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins.
0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. If you happen to be here for the very first time, we've been working our way chapter and chapter through this wonderful book. And, And today, we come to a miracle that many of you read and studied as little children in Sunday school. The miracle where the Lord takes a little boy's lunch and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. Now, on this particular day, the Lord had been healing all kinds of people, and news got out that Jesus Christ was a miracle worker, and the crowds came in droves. And so he was so busy, the other Gospels tell us that he and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So Mark tells us that they got in a boat and they went to the other side to have some quiet time together. But the people from all the various cities ran around the sea and and met them there. And so the Lord continued to teach and to heal all the way until it was virtually dark. And then the folks are hungry. And so the Lord takes a little boy's leftover lunch and he feeds tens of thousands of people. Now remember, John tells us at the end of his gospel that he wrote with a specific purpose in mind, that men and women might know that Jesus is the promised Christ and that in believing in Him, we could find true life in His name. And so he selects seven particular miracles to communicate that message. And he uses, if you remember, a very specialized word for miracle, a miracle with a message. Now, interestingly, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. But what makes John's account so interesting is the bread of life discourse that follows. The events of chapter 6 take place in the course of 24 hours. Jesus feeds thousands of people. He spends time alone with his father on the mountain. He walks in the water. And then he gives the sermon on the bread of life. In fact, it's the longest chapter in all of the gospel of John. But one of the most critical chapters for you and I to understand. And so this morning we're Going to look at this passage, just the first fifteen verses. But God willing, in subsequent weeks, we'll look at this whole chapter in detail. John chapter six. Follow along now, beginning in verse one. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little." One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline there on the back of your bulletin, you can see that we've divided this portion of Scripture into the three vignettes that we find. And, And with those three scenes, there are three applications that I want us to take home with us today. In fact, I hope that you'll at least, if you don't take a full set of notes, that you will at least write down the three applications that I'm going to give today because you're going to need these at some point in your life if you won't already need them today. Remember, as you read the Bible, you're not just reading ancient history. This is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. It's the living word, and it's relevant for us today. And the miracle that we find here, this miracle with a message, illustrates three practical truths that every generation until Christ comes needs to understand. So let's begin this morning by considering the multitude that came. The multitude that came. Look now again in verse 1 in your Bible after these things. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, the thoughtful reader, when he looks at these words, after these things, he's going to immediately ask, after what things? You say, well, after the things in chapter 5. You know, the healing of the man there at the Pool of Bethesda, and that confrontation he had with the Pharisees, where he uh, defended his deity there before those unbelieving Pharisees. Yes? Yes? after those things, and after a host of other things that John doesn't even mention in his gospel. If you will study this gospel carefully, you will see that John uses the phrase after these things typically to describe an indiscriminate period of time. In fact, the way you date this gospel is by the feasts that he mentions throughout it. Remember in the Old Testament, God gave Israel six feasts that they were to celebrate. And they're specified in terms of what month, what days they were to be celebrated upon. And so John will drop those feasts for us throughout this gospel, which helps us to know where we are chronologically, and it makes the gospel come alive. Now in verse 4, if you notice in your text, he mentions Passover. This now for the second time. The first time he mentioned Passover, back in chapter 2, when he did the miracle there at Cana of Galilee, when he turned the water into wine. And then after that, if you remember, he cleansed the temple. And then sometime after that, he healed the nobleman's son, which was the second sign or miracle recorded. Then, after the healing uh, of the nobleman's son, he went there to the Pool of Bethesda, the third miracle, where he heals that man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years. Now, in verse 4, he mentions another Passover, which lets us know that a whole year has gone by from the original miracle done at Cana of Galilee. And so John uses this term, matatata, to describe an indiscriminate period of time. In fact, if you read the other Gospels, You discover a whole lot went on during this period of time. He gave the Sermon on the Mount. He gave what we call the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. He had the encounter with the garrisoned demoniacs. He, he chose 12 men to be apostles. He had called men before to follow him. But now out of all those he called, he selected 12 to be apostles to fulfill his purpose. So after these things, or the NIV paraphrases it, and it gives you the gist of it. Sometime after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, if you've ever been to Israel and you look at the Sea of Galilee, you think, that doesn't really look like a sea to me. It's more like a lake. Well, you know, people use different terms at different times in human history to describe geographical locations. And certainly it is like a big lake. In fact, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 1, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. There at that particular location, there was a little town called Gennesaret, and they named the lake after their own town, which, you know, I suppose might be a little boastful. But nonetheless, that was a common practice. In the Old Testament, the Sea of Galilee is called the Sea of Gennesaret. Why? Because the Hebrew word Ginereth, or the Sea of Genareth, the word means a harp. And if you've ever looked at the Sea of Galilee, it kind of looks like a harp. Well, John notes here, it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Because the Roman emperor in 22 A.D. went in and established a town. So that was the official Roman name. Now look at verse 2. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now underscore that in your Bible. Because they were seeing the signs or miracles. In fact, the tense of the verb in the original indicates they were continually following him. Because he was continually doing miracles, habitually viewing miracles which they saw him perform. That's the thought. So here's a great multitude following Christ but they're not following him in a committed way as sold-out disciples. They had not yet come to true, genuine faith in him. They're following him because of the miracles, and we'll see that in the discourse that follows in the weeks when we study that particular message. Now, we learn from chapter 5, the healing of the man there at the pool of Bethesda, that the Lord's principal purpose in coming to earth was not simply to heal people physically, but to heal people spiritually, to deal with issues of the heart. And that's why back in chapter two, after he cleansed the temple and he did all those unnamed miracles that John doesn't elaborate on us, he said he would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man's heart. And he knew that these were not yet true believers, just miracle mongers. And so they followed him for the miracles he did, for what they could get from him. By the way, lest we rag on these people too deeply, People have not changed much in a few thousand years. Today, people want God for what God can do for them. They want God to heal them, but they don't want God. They want God to marry them, but they don't want God. They want God to get them out of the mess they're in, but they don't want God. They want God to give them a job, but they don't want the living Lord. And that's what this crowd is like. They want the Lord Jesus for what he can do. So we read in verse three. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now John in his gospel does not fill in all the details on this occasion, but let me remind you from Mark chapter 6. In Mark the 6th chapter, the disciples all day long had been sent out by Christ to preach and to do miracles. So what we're going to see here with this feeding of what we call the 5,000, it happened at the end of the day, late in the afternoon. So these guys had been out all day. In fact, Mark records, they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And then they come back and they report to the Lord what took place. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that he had done and taught, all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not have even time to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Now, for those of you who have had ministry opportunities, maybe to preach, and you've been in a situation, maybe working with kids or adults, where you've emoted under the Holy Spirit for a few hours, you know how exhausting it is. You know it takes far more energy as the Spirit of God works through you than sometimes it does to do physical labor. And so these guys have been preaching, healing, doing miracles. They're wiped out, they're tired, and the Lord recognizes that. And so it's in that framework that we read verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, if you study it geographically, they weaved their way up about four miles from where the crowds had been. They got a pretty good distance from the crowd, and certainly I'm sure they thought they'd have some time alone. But of course, Christ knew better, because the time alone was very, very short. Now, John gives us a brief notation. Look at verse 4. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Again, this is the second of three Passovers that John mentions in his gospel. And it becomes evident as we work through the entire chapter that the reason for this little note in verse 4 is not so much chronological as helpful it is to us, but primarily theological as we'll see in the discourse. Now, I've learned as a pastor in this day that you tell a Bible story, you mention some theological truth, and people just draw a blank. Because people today are not really learning the Bible. They don't know the Bible. And even as I say Passover, some of you say, I'm not sure what that is. So let me just take a a, a moment here. Passover was an Old Testament feast that God had established for the Jews. And its Genesis came when God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of Exodus, uh, out of Egypt during what we call the Exodus. Remember all those mighty miracles he did and Pharaoh continually hardened his heart towards God? And then God said, there's one final miracle that you're going to do before Pharaoh. You're going to ask the children of Israel to take an unblemished lamb, and they're going to take its blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel, really making the sign of a Roman cross. And when the destroyer, the death angel, comes through the land that night, he will pass over the firstborn in every home where the blood has been applied. And so every Jew in every generation, every year, would continue to celebrate Passover. They had on their mind blood and, and lambs and unleavened bread, and, and they would eat that night a Passover lamb, and they would share in unleavened bread. And so when he mentions Passover, it's very, very important. Now, we saw the first Passover where he cleans the temple. Remember, he cleanses it of all of its, uh, its abuses. And it was in that context he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. And he relates the temple to his own body, to his own death. When we come to the third Passover that he's going to mention, it will take place on the day that he's crucified. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ will expire the exact hour when those rabbis, when those priests would be there in the temple slitting the necks of those innocent lambs. He would die on that very hour as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this Passover, he's going to do a miracle, and he's going to give us the meaning of the miracle in depth with this discourse that follows. And he's going to relate this Passover to himself. Just as they would eat the unliving bread, he was indeed the bread of life. And so Jesus, verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, the Apostle John does not notice through the other three Gospels that the disciples, again, had come to a place, a deserted place, to be alone. Nor does he tell us that while the disciples had been out all day preaching and healing, Jesus had been doing the same all day long. And so they they got there, but their time spent alone was very short because the Lord looks up, and here comes this multitude. Now, John sometimes fills in details that the other Gospels don't give us, and sometimes the other Gospels give us details that John doesn't write about because they had been published for so long by the time he writes. Mark 6 tells us that the crowd had literally run around the lake, and they had come to this place where Jesus was meeting with his disciples. In fact, all three Gospels tell us that the disciples were hungry, they hadn't eaten the Lord hadn't eaten himself. I'm sure he was hungry, but he never did a miracle to satisfy himself. And so we read in Matthew's account, and when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate and the time has already passed. It's the end of the day. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So Jesus taught all that day. The disciples taught all that day. The late afternoon comes. The multitude is there when they were going to spend some time alone. He continues to teach and heal right until the time it's dark and the crowd's hungry. What's the disciples' solution? The solution to their problem is to get rid of the problem. Just send them home. Let them fend for themselves. But Jesus knew these were hungry people. And going without a meal might cause some to faint. They needed sustenance. Matthew tells us it was evening. Mark says it was already quite late. I like the way Luke puts it. He says the day began to decline. So the Lord's heart goes out to these people in compassion. Now, we typically call this the miracle of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. But I might note here that Matthew's account tells us And there were about 5,000 men aside from women and children. That's a big group. If on average there's one woman for every man with two kids, maybe we should call this the miracle of the 20,000. Because he's feeding tens of thousands of people here, probably about 20,000. Some put it as high as 30,000. And I'm sure the kids are hungry, they're tired, maybe irritable. And so the disciples say, just send them home and let them fend for themselves. But that's not the Lord's answer. So he signals out Philip. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And of course, in one sense, Philip might be the natural person to ask because he's a resident of a nearby town from here, there at Bethsaida. And the problem, of course, to feed such a vast crowd is immense. And so Philip is tested by the Lord. Where are we to buy bread that these May eat. No merchant in town would have enough food on stock to, be even be, to begin to make a dent in this crowd. But this is not a problem for the omniscient God. And he was saying this, the Bible says, verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. This was a test for Philip, and as we will see for the rest of the disciples as well, because he wants to develop Philip in their faith, faith that still needed development. Understand that whenever God wants to develop a man, he tests a man. And there are certain kinds of tests for certain kinds of people. You say, well, pastor, I seem to be getting the same test over and over and over again. Well, James tells us one of the reasons that happens is because we haven't always learned from the test. And so it repeats itself. He says, not if, but when you encounter various trials, where to consider it joy knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And then he says, and let, this is a choice we make, and let endurance have its perfect result. That's why James says we're to pray for wisdom. We use that verse all the time in James 1, 4, and it's a decent application. Any of us like wisdom, let us ask of God. That's a legitimate application. But go back to the original context. He's saying when you're going through a test, when you're going through a trial of life, that is the time to step back and ask God for wisdom. What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to accomplish in my life through this test? And so he asks Philip a question, not to get advice from him. He's the omniscient God, not to get information from him, but to test him, to help Philip learn something about himself because he knew it was an all-man. He wants Philip to understand how his faith is deficient. He's testing his faith, and as you know, he failed the test. So rather than realizing that he was in the presence of almighty, omnipotent God, Philip takes it down to a human level. And he tries to solve the problem with simply human resources. Notice verse 7. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. He counts the cost by doing some mental arithmetic. And I suspect there was probably 200 denarii there in the treasury bag that Judas held. Uh, Matthew chapter 20 tells us in verse 1 that a day's wage for the common laborer was a denarii. And so Philip basically estimated that it would take two-thirds of a year of a hard-working man to be able to feed this man just to give him what we might call a free sample, just to give him a little tidbit to eat. Uh, The NIV paraphrases it as eight months' wages but even that would not be enough to satisfy their hunger you know it's kind of like going through sam's and you're looking for the free samples you work those tables too i've seen you in there all right <laughs> just a taste tasted best that's all that's all and so he calculates it it's a good answer but it's a bad answer it's a good answer in that it's accurate but it's a bad answer in that it leaves jesus christ out of the equation He left God out of his calculation. Have you ever been guilty of that? I know I have. Lest we get too smug and rag on Philip too much. Very often when we look at a problem, we look at it simply from a human point of view, or maybe we think about how we can throw money at it and solve the problem. And we leave God out of the equation. So here's Philip. His test is being tested. His face is being tested, and he needs to look to an omnipotent God to find an answer. Little boy was trying to push over a heavy rock. He was grunting and straining and heaving and sighing, and he just couldn't make it move. And he said, Daddy, I can't move it. With rather a whimsical smile on his face, his dad said, well, are you using all of your strength? He said, I'm using all of my strength. He said, no, you're not because you haven't asked me to help you. I'm your daddy, and your strength is my strength, and my strength is your strength. Hey, that's the message that runs through Holy Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God wants me to do something, I can do it. I spoke with a gentleman yesterday, and he said, my marriage is hopeless. We can't get along, my wife and I. We've tried and tried and tried. They were Christian people. I said, you can get along. Your marriage can be healed. It can be rescued. The question is, will you allow God Almighty to strengthen you? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This was God's will. He said, feed them. And if they would look to the Lord in his strength, in his resources, God would have done it. And so here's Philip. He does some mental calculations and he says it's an impossibility. So Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, steps up to the plate, and he looks at the impossibility of the situation. He's not quite sure how to solve the problem. Notice verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So while Philip is calculating what cannot happen, Andrew, he's trying to figure out a solution as to what can happen. He's surveying the crowd. He's looking around, the only food he can find is one little lad with his little leftover lunch. And he notes here, John, that he has five loaves of barley bread. Only John brings out that it's barley, and that's significant. Because barley bread is the cheapest, the coarsest, and the poorest of all grains. People in the first century very often used it to feed their animals. Only the very poor would typically use it to make bread. And please understand, these loaves are not like the big commercial loaves you buy in the supermarket. The word that's used here is used to describe a small life. Typical first century loaf would be like a half a hamburger bun. And here, the the word for fish could be translated a tidbit. We might translate it, paraphrase it, a sardine. He's got five little pieces of bread and a couple of sardines which they would love to pickle and eat on that bread. And so true to his character, Andrew brings the boy to Jesus. By the way, there's not a whole lot written about Andrew in the Gospels. But every time you find Andrew in the New Testament, he's bringing someone to Jesus Christ. Remember, in chapter 1, he came to his brother Simon Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah and he brings them to Christ. When we come to chapter 12, we will see him bringing Greeks to the Lord Jesus, which is very significant for a Jew to bring a Gentile to the Savior. And here he is, this man who very often lived in the shadow of his brother's name, often referred to as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, but he's really an apostle in his own right. He's a man who sought to solve problems, and he's very much of a people person. And so he's optimistic, but his optimism is limited to human resources. And so like Philip, he does the mental arithmetic. He concludes that this one little leftover lunch is not enough to feed this crowd. You say, well, they're stating the obvious... Exactly. That's what they're trying to do. Remember, the disciples as a whole concluded, Lord, the way to solve the problem is to get rid of the problem. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves.
1: If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 015. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.